You're listening to Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. We're not presenting the show, Jesus the Permanent Messiah, Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Um, I am very excited about today's show, which I will get to in a moment. But before I do, let me just say, some of you may know that I lead pilgrimages to the Holy Land once or twice a year, that uh, are normal Catholic pilgrimages. We go to all of the incredibly holy places where Jesus you know, was conceived and was born and did his ministry and suffered and died. Uh, but we also go to some uh, Old Testament sites and some Jewish sites to kind of very graphically illustrate the continuity between Judaism and the Catholic Church, the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church. And I have um, just finished uh, planning the dates and the details for my two of these pilgrimages, which I'm leading in 2020. The first one will be late May, early June in 2020, and the second one will be over Thanksgiving week in 2020. So um, if you're interested, uh, drop me an email at um, haveroytalk, all one word, haveroytalk at gmail.com, uh, or through my website, salvationisfromthejews.com, and uh, I, I will um, give you more details. Uh, on to today's show. Um, I want to do two things in today's show. Uh, the first thing is I want to talk a little bit about um, divine justice and divine mercy and um, what it means for our sanctification and for our moral life and for our prayer life. Uh, and I, I'm going to start the show with just a little five minutes on that. And then I want to talk about St. Ignatius of Loyola. A few weeks ago, I did a show on um, some of the meditations from the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, and I would like to um, continue in that vein, so to speak, and um, talk more about St. Ignatius, um, his spirituality, essentially, and also also St. Ignatius and the Jews, and what St. Ignatius has to do with the Jews, and what his relationship with the Jews was, and so forth, um, which is I, well, it's certainly of great interest uh, to me, and I hope it's at least of some interest to um, those, some of you, and it also explains to some extent uh, why St. Ignatius is coming on the show, so to speak. But let me start with this um, line of reasoning, which ends up being about divine justice and divine mercy, but I have to start where I have to start which is, um, we know that God created the world. We know that God created everything that is. We tend to think of that as though, you know, we look out there and everything that exists was created by God. You know, all of, all of the stars that exist were created by God. All of the objects in the universe were created by God. All of the rocks and all of the plants and every blade of grass and the oceans and everything in the oceans, th that all those things were created by God. That is absolutely true, but it's, uh, it's bigger than that because God not only created everything that exists, 
but he created the fabric of physical existence itself. He basically created physical existence itself. In other words, he created space, he created time, he created all of the laws of the universe, he created not only the laws that govern you know, uh, planets revolving around stars or, uh, and so forth, but, but um, think of an atom, which used to be the smallest thing that man thought existed, and now we know that even in an atom, there are dozens of different subatomic particles. And all of these subatomic particles um, are governed by laws of physics, have interactions with each other. And every one of those laws, every one of those rules, even within an atom, even within the internal dynamics of a, of a nucleus of an atom, are created by God, not only as the objects themselves, but the laws that govern them. You, we can go out from subatomic particles within the atom to galaxies. And not only are all those things created by God, but all of the laws that govern them are created by God. The fabric of existence is created by God. And that means uh, space itself and time itself, not only the things in space and time. Uh, some of you, I'm sure all of you actually, have heard of the Big Bang Theory. Um, the uh, physicists have essentially um, observed through their mysterious ways that the most likely origin of the universe was a Big Bang, that before the universe came into being as we know it, it was like a, a tiny speck incredibly compressed, you know, I don't know whether it was the size of a marble or the size of a baseball or whatever, but this incredibly tiny thing that somehow exploded and became the universe as we know it. Now, again, one isn't to think of this um, pre-Big Bang universe as all of the matter in the universe being compressed into this baseball, but the universe itself, in other words, the space of the universe itself, was compressed into this baseball. In other words, there was nothing outside of it. There was no existence, no physical existence at all, outside of that baseball of matter. I like to say there was no existence before God created existence itself. Um, I think that's a better way to think of it, but philosophically, there's a problem with putting it that way because God exists. So... There was existence in the sense that God existed, but there was nothing outside of God. There was no world, there was no universe, there was no space-time outside of God before God brought existence into being, brought physical existence into being. Now, having brought all of this existence into being, his wisdom, his, his love, his beauty, his genius has given us not only everything that exists, but all of the laws of physics, all of the laws of biology, all of the laws of cosmology, you know, all of all of the laws of chemistry, everything, you know, everything, the the incredible weaving together of everything that exists is a, a direct outflow from God's love and wisdom and creative power. It's 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 of course it's inconceivably complex and subtle. Now that's all just a starting point because where I wanted to go with that is why did God go to all this work, so to speak? Why did God create the entire physical universe, matter, physics, time, and so forth 
just for one reason, to create, to be able to create immortal human souls, to love him and be loved by him for all eternity in heaven. He created this incredibly complex and subtle and I don't want to say infinitely large, but you know, everything, everything in the physical world out to the furthest galaxy and the fabric of space time itself, just to create basically the moral context for man's creation, for man's spiritual development, for man's moral development, and eventually for man's eternal existence after all of the physical world has passed away with God for all eternity. Now, if God put all of this genius and effort into creating the physical world. And the purpose of all of that was simply to provide the fabric for man's moral development. Don't you think that the same genius and effort and complexity and perfection, which went in the physical world goes into God's um, arrangement of the moral development of man? Of course it does. That was the purpose of all the physical world. He's not going to shortchange the moral world, which was the purpose of everything. He's going to put at least as much attention into the moral world as he did into the physical world. So what this means is that when we think of God's justice, God's justice is as perfect, as all-comprehensive, as all-inclusive as his kingship over the physical world as his kingship over the moral world which means his divine justice there isn't the slightest moral act that escapes his his notice that escapes his um i I have to be careful here I, i don't want to say his ordaining because he doesn't ordain the moral act itself but he ordains the circumstances that lay behind that moral act, and he observes and records that moral act with all of the attention that he pays to every subatomic particle in the universe, and more so, so to speak. It's ridiculous to think that the perfection of God's kingship over the moral domain is any less than over the physical domain. So where am I going with this? We are we are in an age characterized by teaching about divine mercy, the mercy of God, very rightfully. The mercy of God, as he says in Saint Faustina's diary, is you know is is his most um, I don't want to say his most beautiful aspect, but but you know at the very heart of who he is. That doesn't mean that it takes the place of um, the aspect of his justice. His justice is all-encompassing. His justice is perfect. That's, in fact, why Jesus had to incarnate, suffer, and die. It was precisely because um, the, the, uh, basically the slightest sin is such an offense against God and against the moral universe that um, the slightest sin has to be atoned for. The slightest sin has to be made reparation for. And man would be unable to do that and was unable to do that. All of the um, the uh, reparation for sin in the Old Testament did not actually make reparation for sin. It was a picture 
to, of course, first of all, encourage and improve man's moral behavior and also show the seriousness of sin. But we know that it didn't make reparation for sin because we know that going all the way back to Adam and Eve, no man was able to enter heaven until Jesus died on Golgotha. In other words, none of the actions of the greatest saints of the Old Testament were able to make reparation for their sin and enable them to enter heaven. It took Jesus' sacrifice to do so. So if we do not um, feel in our hearts, so to speak, the weight of divine justice, the, the centrality of divine justice, the order of the, of the moral universe, which is as fixed as the order of the physical universe and is equally an act of God, a creation of God. If we don't feel that, then the story of Jesus actually doesn't entirely make sense. Why, why would Jesus have to go through that um, except that the weight of sin and the importance of sin, th- nothing could be done about it. In other words, it's not erasable. It has to be made reparation for. It's also why he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane is because my understanding is he basically, I don't want to say collapsed under, but he, he felt the weight of the aggregate sin of all mankind from the beginning of time to the end of time. That includes, you know, when the seven-year-old child says he didn't break the, the vase when he did break the vase, you know, all the way to mass murderers who, who caused the death of 10 million he took on that sin, certainly this, that sin, any of that sin which was forgiven, as sin is forgiven through the sacraments of the Catholic Church or through the sovereign mercy of God, fell on Jesus and he took it on himself. That's one reason why it's so important to be conscious of the perfection and the totality of divine justice. But there's another reason also, which um, is more personal which is we know that we are supposed to forgive everybody who has offended against us. It's obviously in the Our Father um, to forgive, you know, ask God's forgiveness as we forgive those who have offended against us. This can be extremely difficult. Um, It can be extremely difficult if somebody has hurt you very deeply or hurt someone you loved very, very deeply. It can feel almost impossible to forgive them and one of the reasons it's so hard to forgive them is we think that justice won't be served. In other words, we, you know, it, it's the it's the feeling of, you know, that that the the balance that the scales have to be re-established. In you know, in other words, the the weight of their sin, the weight of their offense, has to be compensated for by. I don't want to say by their suffering, but by something happening to them, by them paying for their sin. And and if we don't understand that um, that God has this completely, completely, completely in his hands and in his control, we are likely to be resentful of... Um, people who have offended us and, and there's nothing we can do about it, there's nothing that happens to them in return, or even the evil we see in the world when we see you know, a politician who you know, has stolen 
hundreds of millions of dollars, or actually even worse, sold out um, sold out uh, military secrets to our enemies in return for bribes, um, which has been known to happen in the recent past, or has had dozens of um, people who are aware of that politician's crimes uh, killed, assassinated, in order for that politician to remain on the top of the heap and so forth. Uh, you know, we, we have become very aware now with the Epstein case of um, how, how well some extremely evil people prosper and get away with murder and worse for a whole lifetime with nothing appearing to happen to them. And the antidote, the, 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 the source of the ability to forgive these people from the bottom of our hearts and not be resentful towards them is precisely the knowledge that, you know, not a hair that falls from your head escapes the awareness of God. Not an iota of this escapes the awareness of God. And uh, his justice is just as all-pervasive and all... Um, all ruling as his mercy is. And so we don't have to worry about wanting to see justice done. We don't have to worry about taking justice into our own hands. We don't have to be unforgiving because we know that God's not going to let it slip through the cracks. So um, I don't know if that helps. <laughs> it certainly helped me um, forgive somebody who I felt very, very, well, I didn't feel, I, who actually um, <clears throat> was responsible for the death of both my parents. I won't go into details there, but was responsible for the death of both my parents, and in one case, intentionally so. Very hard to forgive until, until, I, uh, until I really sank down to the pit of my stomach that... Um, that I should actually pray for God to have mercy on them because, because every sin has to be accounted for and that is going to be some account or, or whatever, some bookkeeping that's going to face them when they face their judgment. So um, I have spent more time on that than I intended and uh, I never know how well this is going over. Um, I will take a break halfway through the hour as I always do, a short musical break. If you want to call in during that break about this, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And uh, after I take the calls, I will go on to St. Ignatius. But before I uh, switch topics or switch to the um, break, I want to read two psalms that are about uh, exactly what I've been talking about. They're about the natural difficulty that somebody who tries to be good has when they see the wicked prosper or appear to prosper. So I will read Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. First, Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of the wicked. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so you dwell in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your vindication as the light and your right as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Fret not yourself over him who prospers in his way, over the man who successfully carries out evil designs. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Worry not yourself, it only tends to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall possess the land. Yet a little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look well at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall possess the land, and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous, and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those who walk uprightly. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will abide forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Uh, the wicked borrows and cannot pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall possess the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Um, the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. The righteous shall be preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their refuge in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The prosperity of the wicked shall be cut off. Now, let me make uh, two comments about this. This is from the Old Testament. Now, um, the, uh, the, there's a um, misunderstanding in the Old Testament. It's not really a misunderstanding in the Old Testament. It's because um, God had not revealed the fullness of salvation in the days of the Old Testament. So this psalm does not distinguish between what happens before you die and what happens after you die. Obviously, in this psalm, when it says that the transgressors shall be altogether destroyed, he's not talking about before they die. He's talking about after they die. When, he sa when the psalm says that the Lord will exalt you to possess the land, that's not clear that he means before you die. He means in everlasting life, the meek shall inherit the kingdom. So I just want to you know, correct that possible puzzlement that one might have, because in fact, we don't see the justice meted out necessarily in this period between birth and death. That's one reason why there might be a temptation to resent the success of the wicked. The fact that we don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. The perfection that God has um, showered, has, has imbued the entire physical world with, he has imbued the moral world with even more perfectly. Um, so anyway, then let me go on to Psalm uh, 73 before the break. Truly, God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
for they have no pangs of suffering. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as other men are. They are not stricken like other men. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? I'm going to interrupt myself here and point out two things. One is, as I read these verses, it's very easy to see what you see on the evening news every night. And the author of this psalm, who is apparently a saint, notice he says, My feet almost stumbled, my steps almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, that underlines precisely how pervasive this temptation is to envy the wicked and how dangerous this temptation is. Back to the psalm. Behold, these men are wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have been untrue to the, children of thy, to the generation of thy children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You, do make, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awaking, you despise their phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a beast toward thee. Nonetheless, I am continually with thee. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Who do I have in heaven but thee? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, those who are far from thee shall perish. You put an end to those who are false to thee. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. Amen. So there's the end of Psalm 73. Now, this psalm makes it more apparent that there's a distinction being made between this world and the next world. Um, he didn't understand until he went into the sanctuary of God. Then he saw their end. In other words, it's as though he saw their judgment. He saw you know, what happens after they die, um, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. It clearly doesn't refer to their fate before death. It refers to their fate upon their death. So um, this is all an encouragement, I guess, to be aware of divine justice, to love divine justice, and to let our understanding that God is just as well as merciful. That's why we have to pray for his mercy. That's why we have to pray for his mercy, not only on ourselves, but on others, especially on people who are not walking in his ways, on, uh, especially his mercy for people 
who are offending him terribly, who are leading others to offend him terribly, who are blaspheming him, who are denying his existence, who are uh, making a mockery of all of the rules he made for our own good and for basically to not offend him. They, they need our prayers um, they, because um, it was, um, oh, um, I'm drawing a blank on the saint, St. Thomas More, when he was in prison about to be executed for being you know, faithful to God. Um, and uh, he totally forgave, the pe- totally unfair, of course, his condemnation to death, but he totally forgave the people who lied and cheated and, and actually m- m- falsely testified that he had, he had said things he hadn't said and so forth to bring about his uh, conviction and his death penalty. And he, he fig- forgave them from his heart in prison and his wife wrote to him saying, how can you forgive these people? And he said, it's very easy because there are only two possibilities. One is that they will be, repent and be forgiven by God, in which case I will have to live with them for all eternity in heaven, so I might as well forgive them now. Or they won't repent for, before they die, in which case they will be condemned to hell and will suffer far more than I could possibly wish for them in my most vengeful temptations. So that's really the answer. <laughs> the answer is everyone is going to end up in heaven or hell, and if they end up in hell, we're, you know, we're not going to have to worry about them not suffering enough, and our job is to do everything we can to bring about what we know God wants, which is that as many people as possible end up in heaven, and that means praying, first of all, forgiving them from our hearts ourselves and using their offense against us to pray that God may forgive them. So I preached through a whole half of this hour, so it's time for our break. We'll go to a short musical break. I will look at the call board when we come back from the break, and um, if I can find the call board, I should be able to do so during the break. And uh, take your calls as soon as we come back, if there are any, and if not, I'll go on to talk a little bit about St. Ignatius. So with that, let's go to our musical break. Hi, this is Roy Shulman. Welcome back to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church or the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church and the sacraments. And um, I did my preaching for the day in the first half of the show. I didn't intend to, but there, there you have it. Um, and uh, so in the time remaining, I want to talk a little bit about St. Ignatius and the, and the Jews, because a number of times I have cited that um, a, a wonderful statement of St. Ignatius. It, it was actually a paraphrase that um, he was accused at one point of having had Jewish blood um, and of uh, being what was called a converso, which was... Um, uh, I, I, it's a long story. I've done other shows on it, but in the mostly in the 14th century, in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, a lot of um, Jews in the Iberian Peninsula and Spain and Portugal uh, entered the Catholic Church. Some of them were genuine conversions. Um, one would like to think that most of them were general conver- genuine conversions. I think they were, but some of them were false conversions uh, because the Jews were at various times expelled from um, 
uh, from Spain and from Portugal and uh, put under, uh, even when they weren't expelled, put under very heavy restrictions as to what they could do and where they could live and so forth. So there were a number of Jews who simply submitted to baptism hypocritically in order to um, essentially get civil rights and be able to stay there. And the, the whole phenomenon of Jews who uh, converted or became Catholic, entered the Catholic Church in that point in time, is referred to as conversos, whether they were genuine converts, whether they were fake converts or whatever. They were also called new Christians, uh, which was really their identifier that they were, that they, whether it was they who had newly entered the Catholic Church or whether it was their grandfather who had become Catholic, um, they were still new Christians, you know, down three, four, five generations. And they were largely distrusted uh, uh, as, um, n- you know, a combination of things, both uh, racial hatred and also distrusted because of the possibility that they weren't genuinely Christian. So anyway, St. Ignatius was accused of being of having Jewish blood, of being a new Christian, and he denied it, but he said that he could imagine no greater honor than if it was true to share blood with our Redeemer. That's the way I've paraphrased it. I have come across the original, the, the genuine account by somebody who was there when St. Ignatius said it. His name was uh, Pedro Ribadinera, and here is his account of what happened. Um, he was obviously one of the early Jesuits with St. Ignatius. One day, when many of us were dining together, Ignatius, speaking of himself about a certain topic, said that he would take it as a special grace from our Lord to have come from Jewish lineage, adding that the reason was, quote, why imagine that a man could be related by blood of Christ our Lord and of Our Lady, the glorious Virgin Mary. He spoke these words with such a facial expression and with so much emotion that tears welled into his eyes. This was something that deeply impressed everyone. Now, there was one of the members, one of the people at the table, on hearing our father make the same statement, the statement that I just said, he crossed himself and exclaimed, A Jew? And he spat on the ground at the word. Our father said to him, Now, Signor Pedro de Zerati, let us be reasonable. Listen to what I have to say. And he then gave him so many reasons for having that attitude that he truly persuaded him to wish to be of Jewish lineage. Wow. So it's really true. St. Ignatius not only um, had tears in his eyes at the thought of the honor of having Jewish blood, even though he didn't, but a typical Spaniard of the day with the typical anti-Semitic attitude actually was disgusted by the statement of Ignatius and spat on the ground in disgust. And St. Uh, Ignatius explained so well to him why it would be an honor to have Jewish blood, that by the end of the explanation, he too really wished to be of Jewish lineage. So um, uh, there are many reasons why St. Ignatius is a hero of mine. This is a relatively new reason that I've come across relatively recently, but um, I did want to talk about it. Now, St. Ignatius, um, when he founded the Jesuits, was not at all 
prejudiced against new Christians or Jewish converts or whatever you want to call them. In fact, uh, one of his earliest best friends in the Jesuits, uh, and I will find his name in a moment, um, was, uh, was, a, uh, was a new Christian, was a Jewish convert. Um, I don't want to sp- uh, spend too much time looking for his, looking for his name um, because I'm on the air. So here it is, Lainez, Diego Lainez. Um, and he was, uh, he was his closest friend uh, in Paris when they were studying in Paris and for a number of years afterwards. And he was a Jewish convert. And a number of the early uh, Jesuits, I'm going to call them new Christians because in those days, whether the individual themselves converted or whether their, fa- their parents or their grandparents had converted, they were all in the same category of new Christians. St. Ignatius did not discriminate with, uh, against new Christians in the uh, Jesuit order, uh, and they were welcome. And uh, this was very, uh, very exceptional. In fact, most orders did not allow uh, new Christians to uh, join the orders. Um, the um, um, let me uh, uh, um, excuse me um, again. Uh, I'm making noise, so you know that I'm still on the air. Uh, oh, here it is. Um, there were there were um, purity of blood laws in Spain at the time, and that restricted all kinds of roles, not only to Catholics, they were always restricted to Catholics, but to old Christians. In other words, that explicitly excluded new Christians uh, from occupations and from membership in a number of religious organizations. And uh, the first religious order to enforce it was the uh, Order of St. Jerome, then the Dominicans um, enforced it, and then the Franciscans enforced it and actually got permission from the Pope to refuse applicants of Jewish descent, Uh, other orders, monasteries, churches, dioceses, military orders, and confraternities forbade the uh, entry of Jewish converts or new Christians. And all of this was around the time that Ignatius was writing the Constitutions of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit Constitutions. And he did not, of course, follow suit and have any restrictions on Jews whatsoever. And this is despite the fact that in the Constitutions he had a long list of what he called impediments, circumstances which should result in the refusal of an applicant. And even though he had these long list of things that should disqualify an applicant, being a Jewish convert or a new Christian was not among them. In fact, he got in a lot of trouble. Remember, he's trying to start this new order. He needs the favor of bishops to give them permission to um, celebrate, to have priestly faculties in the diocese. He needs the favor of archbishops. He needs the favor of the pope to establish the order and so forth. Um, he could ill afford to be on the outs with powerful higher-ups in the church. But nonetheless, he held the line and not discriminating against Jewish converts and new Christians. And in fact, uh, he got in a special, specially deep trouble in Spain 
um, the primate of Spain, which of course means the church official in charge of all of Spain, the Archbishop Silicio, actually turned against the Jesuits because they allowed Jewish converts into the order. As a result, after having originally welcomed them, remember this is Spain, this is St. Ignatius's home territory, after originally welcoming, welcoming the Jesuits into Spain, the archbishop considered them all heretics and revoked the faculties of all of the priests in the diocese, um, forbidding, well, first of all, forbid, he forbade all Jesuits to preach, hear confessions, administer the Eucharist, or even say Mass in any church. In other words, he forbade the Jesuit priests any faculties at all to, to perform as a priest. And he also revoked the faculties of all of his priests, non-Jesuit priests, in other words, diocesan priests, who had made the spiritual exercises because of the taint that flowed into the Jesuits from them not forbidding entry into the Jesuits of Jewish converts. And yet, so St. Ignatius was under a lot of pressure to change the rule so that he would again regain the favor of the Archbishop of Spain. Uh, the Archbishop made it official and explicit, by the way, that this was why he was suppressing the Jesuits and that if they would uh, forbid um, uh, Jewish converts, he would remove these restrictions. As a matter of fact, what Archbishop Silesio said was, if, that, if, if the Society of Jesus agreed to impose this statute of purity of blood, um, the Archbishop would, quote, treat it well, and it would have no greater friend than him or anyone who would favor it more, and yet Ignatius absolutely refused to yield. What he did do was, out of prudence, um, not send uh, priests, Jesuits, who were Jewish converts, into Spain, needless to say, um, to keep from having things explode in his face. But he absolutely refused to, to discriminate against Jewish converts within the Jesuits. Um, now I'm going to read uh, some passages from the uh, wonderful book that I found this information in, written by a Jesuit called St. Ignatius of Loyola and the Jews, which is, by the way, um, available for free on the Internet as a PDF file. So let me just read a couple of passages from it. Ignatius, absolutely certain that it was God's will to accept new Christians, went to the Pope, Julius III, and to certain cardinals um, to ask favors, and as a result, the Pope wrote two letters, one to Archbishop Silesio expressing disbelief at his treatment of the society and ordering him to suspend any action he had taken against it, and another to the nuncio asserting that the Archbishop was in no way to hinder the society's work. Um, so that is part of the story. Now I will... Um, uh, go to a less happy uh, part of the story, which is that um, this policy did not survive long after St. Ignatius passed away. 
Um, he was adamant, of course, that the society not discriminate against the Jews, but um, uh, let me let me uh, find the exact date. Um, uh, ba -ba 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 um, the uh, oh well. Anyway, I'm I'm having trouble um, finding it as I as I flip through here. Anyway, shortly thereafterwards, um, um, may actually may not have it here in my printout. Uh, shortly thereafterwards the later um, superior of the Jesuits reversed this and um, did make it forbidden for the Jesuits to not only accept any Jewish convert as a Jesuit, but not to accept any Jewish convert, uh, excuse me, not to accept anybody who had Jewish blood going back five generations, meaning not to accept any Catholic who's parents were all Catholic, both Catholics, whose grandparents were all Catholics, whose great-grandparents were all Catholics, if there was one great-great-grandparent who was a Jew. And this prohibition was put on, uh, I believe it was late in the 16th century, but, praise be to God, it was lifted. When was it lifted? It was lifted in the 1930s. Until then, it was still in effect. So there you have it. You have um, the uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly about the Jesuits, <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, okay. Now I have to be careful in what I say. There have been at various times problems associated with the Jesuit order. Um, there there was one point in time, of course, when the Jesuit order was entirely suppressed by the Pope. And uh, so there have been ups and downs in the Jesuit order in their fidelity to, um, to Christ, actually, is what it amounts to, of course, because, because there's, only, there's only one Christ and there's only one fidelity to Christ. So without um, directly addressing what kind of period we are in now in terms of fidelity of the Jesuits to, um, to Christ himself, and of course... Uh, the Jesuits is a large congregation, so anything that's said is a generalization, which is not going to apply to every Jesuit anyway. But be that as it may, this is an interesting illustration of the turnaround which is possible and which is um, uh, characteristic, I would say, in the history of the Jesuits, is, is some flip-flopping from very good to not so very good. And this was uh, one one dimension of that, one illustration of that, which had to do with the, um, with the Jews. Um, so, oh, here it is. Here, I found the dates. Well, it didn't take long. Um, in 1593, at the Fifth General Congregation, a, degree, a decree was passed that no one of Jewish or Muslim backgrounds could ever enter the society, that not even the general superior of the Jesuits could dispense from this impediment. Um, and uh, this, this was of any background going back any distance. This was softened 
in the sixth general Congre sixth general congregation in 1608, and the decree was mitigated so that it only excluded those who had Jewish blood somewhere in the past five generations. If it was six generations away or more, then they could be considered for entry into the Jesuits. This was called the impediment of origin. The General Congregation 27 in 1923 made it possible for the Superior General to dispense a candidate who did not have this necessary six generations of pure blood, but it required a personal dispensation from the Secretary General. And then the General Congregation 29 in 1946, which was right after the close of World War II, finally abrogated this restriction, which was referred to as the impediment of origin. So there you have the story of um, St. Ignatius's philo-Semiticism, philo-Judaism. I should say Semiticism because, anyway, I, I'm just going to close with this note. Yes, St. Ignatius was passionate about the conversion of the Jews. When he lived in Rome, he did a tremendous amount to encourage the conversion of Jews and had tremendous success, and I'll talk about that on another show when I have time to. Um, does wanting to see Jews convert mean you're prejudiced against them? Or does not wanting to see them convert mean you're prejudiced against them? If, I mean, there's no greater good you can do anyone than to lead them on the path to Christ, the path to God, and the path to our eternal salvation. In those days, it was understood less well than today that you don't necessarily have to be a baptized Christian to go to heaven. If St. Ignatius loved Jews, had a warm feeling towards Jews, had charity in his heart towards Jews, of course he would want to evangelize the Jews. Of course he would want to see as many Jews as possible come into the church. I want to see as many Jews as possible come into the church, not because I think they're going to end up in hell if they don't end up in the Catholic Church, because I want them to know the joy, the peace, and the intimacy with God, which only comes through the teaching of the Catholic Church and participation in the sacraments. So on that note, I will close the show. I will certainly encourage continued prayer for the conversion of the Jews, and um, I want to thank you for listening and invite you to listen again next week, same time, same place, to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. This is Roy Shoman saying bye for now.